0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly web scene for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, My Broken Hosanna. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Palm Sunday, April 14th, 2019. Like many of you, I've celebrated Palm Sunday every year since I was a little kid. I know how to make clever crosses out of palm branches. I know all the verses of All Glory, Laud, and Honor. I know how to shout Hosanna at the top of my lungs as Jesus makes his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But what I didn't know until this week is what the word Hosanna actually means. All these years, I thought it meant some churchy version of we adore you, or you rock, or go king. It doesn't. In Hebrew, it means something less adulatory and more desperate, less generous, perhaps, and more demanding. It means save now. Confession. This year I come to Holy Week, tired, scared, and hungry. Tired of God's hiddenness or absence, and tired of my own lonely, unsteady heart. Scared of all the stones sealing all the graves, I don't believe a miracle will roll away. Hungry for a would-be gardener to call my name beside the tomb. Hungry for a million small and large and ordinary and extraordinary resurrections. This is me, cloak and palm branches at the ready waiting with a mile-long list of expectations for a mighty king to come down and make the mountain and rock my world. This is the meaning of my hosanna, save now. Not, I love you. Not, your will be done. Not, I praise you as you are, you gentle, vulnerable, weeping, suffering God. Save now. If the Palm Sunday story is about anything, it's a story about disappointed expectations. A story of what happens when the God we want and think we know doesn't show up, and another God... A less efficient, less aggressive, far less muscular God shows up instead. When that happens, when our cries of save us now are met with heartbreaking silence, our hosannas go dark and our palm branches wither. We walk away, we close our hearts, and we deny and betray the image of God in ourselves and in each other. If push comes to shove, our hosannas give way to hatred, and we strike to kill. Historians tell us that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he asked his disciples to secure a donkey for his journey down the mountain into the holy city. In their compelling book, The Last Week, what the Gospels really teach about Jesus' last days in Jerusalem, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan argue that two processions entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. Jesus's was not the only triumphant entry. Every year during Passover, the Jewish festival that swelled Jerusalem's population from its usual 50,000 to at least 200,000, the Roman governor of Judea would ride up to Jerusalem from his coastal residence in the west. He would come in all of his imperial majesty to remind the Jewish pilgrims that Rome demanded their complete loyalty, obedience, and submission. The Jewish people could commemorate their ancient victory against Egypt and slavery if they wanted to, but if they tried any real-time resistance they would be obliterated without a second thought. As Pilate clanged and crashed his imperial way into Jerusalem from the west, Jesus approached from the east, looking by contrast, ragtag and absurd. Unlike the Roman emperor and his legions, who ruled by force, coercion and terror, Jesus came defenseless and weaponless into his kingship. Riding on a donkey, he all but cried aloud the bottom-line truth that his rule would have nothing to recommend it but love, humility, long-suffering and sacrifice. So often I think I know exactly what kind of savior I need. The saviour of the swift repair, the majestic intervention, the tangible presence, the butter soft landing. But here's the thing that savior is not Jesus. If there's a single day on the liturgical calendar that illustrates the dissonance at the heart of our faith, it's Palm Sunday. More than any other, this festive, ominous, and complicated day of palm fronds and hosanna banners warns us that paradoxes we might not like or want are woven right into the fabric of Christianity. God on a donkey, dying to live, a suffering king, good Friday. These paradoxes are what give Jesus a story, its shape, weight, and texture, calling us at every moment to hold together truths that seem bizarre, counterintuitive, and irreconcilable. On good days, I understand that these paradoxes are precisely what afford my religion its credibility. If I live in a world that's full of pain, mystery, and contradiction, then I need a religion robust enough to bear the weight of that messy world. I need a religion that empowers me in Richard Ward's beautiful words to live in exquisite, terrible humility before reality. But the question is, will I choose the humble and the real? Or will I insist on the delusions of empire? Will I accompany Jesus on his ridiculous donkey? Or will my impatient and broken hosanna determine the road I take to Jerusalem? In reference to Palm Sunday, Frederick Biechner writes this, Despair and hope, they travel the road to Jerusalem together, as together they travel every road we take. Despair at what in our madness we are bringing down on our own heads, and hope in him who travels the road with us and for us, and who is the only one of all of us who is not mad. Biechner is right. We are mad with despair and hope both, so much so that we don't know what to do with the story of a God who comes to die so that we can live. For those of us who struggle to reconcile the role of God's will in the death of Jesus, Palm Sunday offers us a terrible, beautiful, please-pay-attention clue. It was the will of God that Jesus declared the coming of God's kingdom a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of slow, self-emptying love, a kingdom of radical embrace, radical patience, and radical risk that demands from us a degree of trust, vulnerability, and courage that empire can't even imagine. Jesus died not because a furious Father in heaven needed to kill his precious Son in order to love us, but because Jesus unflinchingly fulfilled the will of God. He died because he exposed the ungracious sham at the heart of all human kingdoms, holding up a mirror that shocks us at the deepest levels of our imaginations. Even when he knew that his vocation would cost him his life, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Even when he knew who would get the last laugh at Calvary, he mounted a donkey and took Rome for a ride. What, I wonder, would Jesus on a colt have to say about our obsession with ease and efficiency, prosperity and certainty, safety and immunity? Where and how would his parade of the radically vulnerable speak truth to today's centres of power? I don't mean for a minute to write glibly, As if the Jesus to whom my daily cry, Save now, doesn't break my heart. He does. Every single time I pray my yearning Hosanna and Jesus doesn't give me what I long for, my heart breaks again. The truth is, I want and I want and I want so much more than I praise and I praise and I praise. I know that I'm supposed to love the God on a cold who overturns all my expectations of what divinity should look like and act like. In theory, I do love him. But in practice, I daily pass him over, Train my eyes on the horizon, and hold out hope for the emperor. In the end, my solace is this. is not that I hold paradoxes, that paradox holds me. I'm held and raised by a god who is too big for thin one-dimensional truths, even my own most cherished one-dimensional truths. I'm held by a god who sticks with me even when I won't stick with him, a god who accepts my praise even when it is mingy, half-baked, and selfish. A God who knows all the reasons my heart cries, save now, and carries those broken, strangled cries to the cross for me and with me. A God who knows, who knows how many deaths lie ahead, how many sorrows, disappointments, farewells and jagged endings I or you must face before resurrection comes home to stay. I can't even imagine, but Jesus can, and Jesus will not leave us alone for a single one. Welcome to Holy Week. Here we are, and here is our God. Here are our hosannas, broken and unbroken. Here is the one who comes to die, so that we can live. For books this week, Dan Reviews Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality by Jaron Lanier. For almost 40 years now, since his early 20s, Jaron Lanier has occupied an unusual place as both an insider techno-enthusiast and an outsider humanist prophet crying in the wilderness. This memoir proceeds along these two tracks. It's partly the story of his personal life and partly a history of the technology of virtual reality that he helped to pioneer. This book, like his previous three books, all reviewed on JWJ, You Are Not a Gadget, Who Owns a Future?, and 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now, have all but international bestsellers. In 2010, Time Magazine named Lanier one of the 100 most influential people in the world. To describe Lanier's personal story as unusual is a gross understatement. He grew up in rural New Mexico in a place of unsurpassed irrelevance. His mother Lily died when he was young. He was bullied and beaten at school as an oddball. After living in tents for two years with his widowed father, at the age of 12, he began a two-year project to build a geodesic dome house in the desert that his father lived in until his late 80s. At the age of 14, he started taking classes at New Mexico State University. He never returned to high school and never graduated from college. By age 17, he was in New York City making friends with the likes of John Cage. He has a collection of 2,000 rare and antique music instruments, all of which he can play with some enjoyment. Today, he sports his trademark dreadlocks, His friends run the gamut from Yoko Ono to Al Gore. There was a bad first marriage and struggles with power, fame, vanity, and wealth. Then there is Lanier the technologist. By the time the polymath and prodigy was 20, he was giving thousands of talks around the country about the technology of virtual reality that he pioneered. In 1984, he co-founded a company called Visual Programming Languages, which eventually flamed out around 1990 and then was acquired by Sun Microsystems, which was acquired by Oracle. To this day, Lanier is an enthusiastic cheerleader about VR, but he's always and everywhere wary of the many myths that surround it and technology in general. It has the capability of, quote, amplifying the best and worst in people. The question of our age, says Lanier, is whether we can deconstruct the powerful seductions of technology in order to see ourselves and the world with honesty and realism. How bad do things have to get before tech culture decides it's worth challenging even our most cherished mythologies in order to dig ourselves out of our mess? In his view, today's world feels like a dystopian science fiction vision come to life. Technology has become both irresistibly cool and dangerously creepy. For Movies This Week, Dad Reviews Left Behind America. If you don't have time to read one of the numerous books about how many towns in America have been hollowed out in the last 40 years, see, for example, my book reviews of The Left Behind, The White Working Class, Deeply Divided, or Hillbilly Elegy. This one-hour documentary by Frontline and ProPublica is a good place to start. The film explores Dayton, Ohio as a sort of case study. At its peak in 1960, Dayton had a population of 262,000 and a proud history that included the Wright brothers, the Fortune 500 company, and CR that had been there since 1884, and a robust manufacturing industry with the likes of General Motors. Today, Dayton's population is 140,000. Both GM and NCR are long gone, with jobs outsourced to Mexico and China. The opioid epidemic, including heroin, is so bad that sometimes a coroner's office doesn't have enough refrigerated spaces for all the bodies. West Dayton is a food desert with no grocery store. There are blocks upon blocks of abandoned houses with broken windows and graffiti. The poverty rate is a staggering 35%. The movie interviews all sorts of stakeholders, like the current and past mayors, Volunteers at a soup kitchen and a food bank, finance experts, a local attorney, and most importantly, local families that, complain when it is, that explain what it is like to try to survive. Dayton is not unique in the problems that we are facing. That is common among urban communities all across the United States, says Joel Jones, a co founder of Neighborhoods Over Politics. But what is unique is that Dayton is still small enough to right some of these wrongs. We're not a New York City. We're not a Chicago. We're Dayton, Ohio. And finally, for poetry, for Palm Sunday, Coming to a City Near You by Carol Penner. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Jesus comes to the gate, to the synagogue, to houses prepared for wedding parties, to the pools where people wait to be healed, to the temple where lambs are sold, to gardens beautiful in the moonlight. He comes to the governor's palace. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, to new subdivisions and trailer parks, to penthouses and basement apartments, to the factory, the hospital, and the cineplex, to the big box outlet center, and to churches, with the same old, same old message, unchanged from the beginning of time. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, with his good news, and hope erupts, joy springs forth, the very stones cry out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds jostle and push, they can't get close enough. People running alongside, flinging down their coats before him. Jesus, the parade marshal, waving, smiling. The paparazzi elbow for room, looking for that perfect picture for the headline. The man who would be king. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest to you, and gets the red carpet treatment. Children waving real palm branches from the florist. Silk palm branches from Walmart. Palms made from green construction paper. Hosannas ringing in churches, chapels, cathedrals, and monasteries, basilicas, and tent meetings. King Jesus honored in a thousand hymns in Canada, Cameroon, Calcutta, and Canberra. We love this great, big, powerful, capital K, King Jesus, coming in glory and splendor and majesty and awe and power and might. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Kingly, he takes a towel and washes feet. With majesty, he serves bread and wine. With honor, he prays all night. With power, he puts on chains. Jesus, King of all creation, appears in state in the eyes of the prisoner, the AIDS orphan, the crack addict, asking for one cup of cold water, one coat shared with someone who has none, one heart, yours, and a second mile. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Can you see him? Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for April 14th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.